0: This isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is the one podcast I want my kids to listen to out of all my 1200 podcasts. I keep telling my kids, you can make a lot of money doing an online business. And I'm not trying to be like cliche, oh, start an online business. People do make a lot of money at this. And the expert, my guest today, Jeff Lerner, has been on the podcast before. His first book just came out called Unlock Your Potential. And it really gives practical step-by-step advice on a whole bunch of different business models and how anybody could start them. And I know these business models work. I've seen people go from zero to millions using them. And so listen to this podcast. It's great practical advice. I always loved having Jeff on the podcast. We have great conversations. We talk all over the place and it's no different here here's jeff
1: i'm very eager and excited to do this but also i'm your health is more important than
0: my pr so no but <laughs> your your book let's just start the podcast with this i don't have you on because you wrote a book i have you on because you wrote a great book that I wish I had had when I was... Honestly, if I had your book when I was 18 years old, I would not have gone to college. I would have started one of the businesses you suggest in this book because I've been running this through my head all along anyway. Like, oh, if if only I was 18 now, this is what I would do. And then you wrote it in the book, exactly what I was thinking of. So I'm all ready to start. And this is... you know, I'll intro you before I am, but this is Jeff Lerner. You just wrote Unlock Your Potential. You've taught thousands of people how to be entrepreneurs with Andre, E N-T-R-E. And we'll get to the URL at the end. Jeff, welcome once again. James, so glad to be here, man. I uh, I guess
1: for full context, just so everybody's like, man, these guys seem like they're already on a roll. Like you were on my show yesterday. Yeah. And I feel like we're we're just picking up mid-conversation. And it's so great to be back for part
0: two. It's totally true. And your book is a really it's not like we're going to repeat anything from yesterday from your podcast your book is a real nice segue into real practical entrepreneurship. Like someone is like sick of their crappy job or whatever, and they want to be an entrepreneur. They don't know where to start. You give really practical advice, but we'll start off with the actual, what I normally think of as BS advice, like kind of the almost woo-woo stuff. But it's actually much more practical than I thought when I read your sections. And then you get into some real practical stuff, like what businesses to actually start and how to do it. And by the woo-woo stuff, I mean, every book in the world talks about gratitude. I'm like, oh no, here's a gratitude chapter. But you bring up a really good point that humans are wired to not be grateful. And I never really thought of it that way. That Gratitude is actually really difficult biologically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's
1: actually a terrible survival mechanism. You're better off being cynical and unappreciative if you wanna stay alive.
0: Yeah, describe that further.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, and that's, there's a, there's a chapter, and actually, you know, it's funny, you publish a book, the book's 28 chapters and, you know, essentially I I threw 28 plates of spaghetti at the wall and, you know, you want them all to stick, but you, you find out after the fact which ones people really resonated with. But that chapter, The Subtle Art of Gratitude is probably the one that I've heard the most about from initial feedback, but it's also like the shortest chapter. I think it's only like five or six pages. But it really, yeah, it digs into the neurology of gratitude, the evolutionary biology of gratitude, and ultimately the need for ourselves to develop a discipline and a methodology to like sublimate our natural instinct and become grateful and institute a practice of gratitude. But like you said, not in a woo-woo way, in a very pragmatic, how will this reorient my behaviors, my decision-making my perspective, how will this retrain my reticular activating system to perceive and observe different things in the world and and thus respond to different opportunities in the world. Like, yeah, I'm essentially, I think you're actually sort of describing one of the general ethoses. What's the plural of ethos? Ethoses? (laughs) Ethi? Ethi? I I, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, You're describing one of the general sentiments of the book, which is how to take a lot of this sort of opaque woo-woo entrepreneurial development stuff and which is, look, if it if it was useless, it wouldn't exist. It would not have persisted if that stuff was useless. It's just that it's kind of been hijacked and like turned into vaporware by people that want to sell widgets and metaphysics. But like it actually is super useful if you can just like pragmatize it and make it actionable. And I think that's one of the things that the yeah, book attempts to do.
0: I want to talk about that because, I had this discussion with Stephen Kotler who writes a lot about getting into a flow state and mm-hmm. he says one of the ways you could trigger a flow state is as you just said having a gratitude practice. But I don't know if he quite makes the bridge into okay now I'm feeling gratitude now I'm in a flow state. So like when you say it solves practical issues for you, like when I think of when people tell me oh think have a gratitude routine in your morning I think, okay, I'm going to be grateful for my kids. I'm going to be grateful for I'm alive. That's better than being dead. And in most cases, what do you mean that it's practical?
1: Remove the word flow and let's just talk about state, right? Tony Robbins talks a lot about state. The state you're in determines the day you have. And the state you're in consistently determines the life you have. That's just true. And the book brings together a lot of these themes. Like gratitude is one node of a cluster of themes, whether it's gratitude, enthusiasm, whether it's optimism, whether it's positive regard for others. You know, these are sort of different facets of the same, like, be a positive, uplifting person gemstone, right? And they derive from and they speak to your state, your physiological state and your neurological state. You know, we all know people who just go out into the world and good stuff seems to happen around them. And we can only really rationalize that in one of two ways. We can either take the approach that tries to create separation, distance, and disavow personal responsibility, which is, oh, they're just lucky. Oh, they're just gifted. Oh, they're just well-networked. Oh, they're just blessed, whatever. Or we can go, huh, what's really going on there? And we can accept that energy is a real thing, that resonance is a real thing, that metaphysics is a real thing, even if it's not fully understood. And as soon as we accept that, it's very binary. You either reject it and life gets really, really sort of like physicalized and almost like nihilistic very quickly, or you accept it and it begs some options and some decisions you have to make to actually embrace it and lean into it. But what makes no sense is to go, oh yeah, that's a real thing, but I'm not comfortable with it, so I'm going to steer clear. That's just fatalism.
0: I really believe this, that energy is really important. It's everything the reason we sleep at night is because we simply run out of energy for the day and we need to replenish. So Mm -hmm. which is why sleep is this underappreciated tool for business success.
1: But also we don't die when we go to sleep. We actually switch to a different type of energy and our brain operates with a different set of electrical frequencies. And so we actually have energy modulation in the body too. It's not just up and down,
0: it's side to side, so to speak. And it's interesting because there are a lot of things that deplete energy from you. So let's say the physical stuff, exhaustion and sleep occurs. And then also like if you're having like emotional issues, if you're arguing with your friends or if you're having a business issue, if you obsess on them in an unhealthy way, that takes energy away from you because you're using that energy to obsess and worry instead of solve a problem and innovate and grow. And I guess gratitude kind of short circuits a lot of these negative, obsessive things. And I'll just give you a specific example because it just happened to me. You know, I have like COVID right now and I was doing really well. And also I took a test and it gave me a negative result. And so I thought I didn't have COVID. I told you about this yesterday. Right. And suddenly it made me, literally it made me feel better like in a second because I was like, my body thought I didn't have COVID. So it's was like, oh, why am I bad? So, I so, so your bed.
1: mental relief became a sensation of physical relief.
0: Yeah. And I don't normally believe in that, but it would like really happened. Like my I literally felt like I went from having a hundred and four fever to normal fever and I was just walking around outside and no problem. And then of course I had a positive COVID test an hour later, but I didn't let that distract me from feeling healthy. For the most part worked. But then I guess you know COVID does weird things to your head a little bit. And so last night I couldn't sleep and I found myself obsessing on some negative things. And maybe if I had short circuited that with like a serious gratitude practice. Sometimes I practice gratitude and I feel like I'm just fooling myself. Like it's just distracting me for a second. Okay, I'm grateful for, I have great kids and blah, blah, blah. Then I would get right back to the negative stuff.
1: Well, I think one of the ways you can look at gratitude and and, and I do want to emphasize, I know we're going to go other places, but like it's not a book about gratitude. It's a six-page chapter in a 360-page book.
0: You get super practical about real businesses to start and that's what we're going to spend most of the time on. But I will say this, a
1: lot of times you can evaluate something by what it cannot coexist with, right? Part of the value of gratitude is just its intrinsic inability to coexist with fear. So, like, if you say, Well, what is it that actually sabotages most people? What is it that either drives bad decisions? We had a, a really rapturous discussion about this yesterday in regards to some of your chess playing, right? You know, typically you can peel back layers on bad decisions and get to underlying fears that cause them. And there's well paid therapists that help you do that. But And you, you helped me yesterday. Oh yeah, come on my show and we'll talk about it. I'll make my unqualified attempts. But anyway, the point is, gratitude literally crowds out fear. And so if for no other reason than simply to operate in the absence of fear, because the mind struggles to process a negative thing, you can't say don't think of an elephant any more than I can say don't be afraid if you're afraid. But if I can give you something that fear cannot coexist with to focus on, then actually there's a way to get rid of fear and gratitude is one of those
0: things. You're right. I don't want to get too much into it. But I feel like it's easy to be too broad with gratitude. Like every day I could be grateful about the same things. Like what were you, if you had a gratitude practice like right this second, how could you make it so it really rings true for your body and mind and not just like, oh, okay, I'm gonna check these lists off and it's the same things as yesterday and blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, that's a such a great question. I'll give away a little bit of the book, which is. The way that I learned or I saw modeled the operationalization of gratitude was actually in a book by a guy named John Kralick who wrote a book called 365 Thank Yous. Oh, yeah, right. Where he essentially rebuilt his life. I mean, he was at rock bottom in every sense, physically, relationally, professionally. And he rebuilt his life from the ground up through a daily practice for a year of writing very specific thank you notes to 365 different people that had impacted him in his life. And that book chronicles his journey over the course of a year of how he completely transformed his life. And I think that is a great representation of gratitude in practice, which to your point, it's very specific. It's very diverse. I think there's a diminishing return to repeatedly being grateful for the same things. It just
0: washes into the
1: mind and goes away. Yeah, I think part of a general experience of gratitude is actually realizing how much there is to be grateful for, which includes challenging yourself to find new things to be grateful for all the time, not just defaulting to the obvious. I
0: have to say, Airbnb Let's say I'm in the middle of a sales meeting. It may be going well. It may not be going well. But I want to like boost myself a little bit. Like maybe I notice some negative stuff coming in. Like oh no, this is not going my way. Or right, right. I start getting down, with and I want to use, I want to kind of short circuit that using gratitude. Like I could say to myself, oh, I'm grateful I even had the opportunity to have this meeting. Or I don't know, like yeah, would I that think, work? I, I think the key is using gratitude as a fulcrum to change your state. Right. So and How, do it's I, not how like, can I make sure I do that instead of just it just being placebo? Bring it into the conversation. Mm.
1: In terms of your analogy, hey, I'm in a sales meeting. Let's say I'm mm. talking to the guy and assume every pronoun I say is gender neutral in the world we live in. I just mean like the human. So I'm talking to this person and the conversation is not going my way in my mind, but that's self-fulfilling, right? Like I'm in a state that it's not going my way. Thus, it is not going my way because of my state, right? So how do I reset the room? you know, first of all, you know, sit up, think, wow, well, you know, honestly, when I walked in the person at the front desk, like they were so kind and they were so pleasant. They defied every stereotype of like the disgruntled receptionist. Maybe I'm going to bring that into the room right now and say, you know, by the way, Mr. Or Mrs. Androgynous metaphorical human, you know, I just have to say like the person this works your front desk, they were so pleasant. It was actually almost like they caught me off guard with how positive they were. Like you must have a really wonderful culture around here or have some great stuff going on in your hiring, like it actually brightened my day. I I literally am sitting here right now and I know we're talking about what we're talking about, but I, I just want to tell you, I cannot actually escape this feeling of like, I'm so grateful that I walked in and had that experience with that person. What do you do? How, How is it that you built this culture where, you know, let's say the lowliest person on your totem pole is actually so positive and
0: pleasant. Like, can you, you, you so, know what I mean? Like
1: actually bring it into the conversation. Yeah. That's how you reset the
0: room. So that's really great because the two examples you brought up was the John Cralick, one where he wrote 365 letters to people he, he said thank you to. And that could, in so many different ways, that could change your life. And this one, you bring the gratitude to life in the meeting. What if you're in a situation where you can't necessarily bring it to life, but you want that boost of energy? Is there a way to do it or you have to wait so you can physically manifest the gratitude?
1: No, I mean, I think you can always write it down. I mean, I think there's a cascade of making things real. Mm. Anything that involves an exchange with another person, because you kind of get like this commingle multiplicative effect of energy when like gratitude is shared between two people. And actually, by the way, there's a whole section in the book on in communication and and what actually is happening in the act of communication and how it's creating a shared experience through what I call or what I might describe as like bonded division, where there's like a duality, but also a connection through the communization, the communication of a thing. And so that's going to be the way you, you make it the most real is by bringing it into an exchange. But if you're by yourself, write it down. Then you at least give it a timeless quality where it will exist even after you've forgotten it. And if I guess you don't even have a phone to type on or something, speak it aloud. You know, you just want to mm-hmm. make it as real as possible while obviously preserving energy as much as possible. Like Like we can't go around all day just being grateful and not doing any work.
0: So this is great. That really answered a lot of questions for you on the gratitude side. I want to get onto the practical stuff. One more thing in the book you mentioned that got me really curious, and it was also early on in the book. You talked about Alex Murr, who I had never heard of before, M-E-H-R, who mm-hmm. I guess you mentioned in the book was Ty Lopez, his entrepreneurial partner. But before that, he had started businesses. You mentioned he sold one business for $300 million. And this is just like a side thing. I'm just curious because I visited Ty Lopez. Maybe it was early 2016 mm-hmm. and it was right after his big youtube campaign about you know this is my garage and you got knowledge books. <laughs> yeah knowledge, knowledge. <laughs> is there, that's how i got this car and i didn't know what to think of him but i think he's evolved as an entrepreneur where he's like buying businesses and doing yeah. things so what's the story there ty and alex like how do they work together this is totally just a side thing but i'm curious
1: they became partners a while ago. You know, I had Alex on my show. Probably been almost two years now, and we've very lightly stayed in touch. I mean, we're not like you know BFFs or anything, but but I, I follow him pretty closely. And what happened is a couple of years ago, him and Ty formally launched something called Retail E Commerce Ventures, or REV for short. And basically, what they do is they buy failing or ailing sort of iconic American brands and they buy them at auction or they buy them at private equity tables. They buy, I mean, they, and they have some very creative ways that they do it. I mean, they're, they're brilliant guys. You know, Alex is a, you know, he was a NASA scientist turned amazing entrepreneur, but I mean, they own, they own Pier 1 Imports. They own Linens and Things. They own the Franklin Mint. I think they own Dress Barn. I mean, these are big American outlet brands. I remember when he bought Dress Barn and I'm like thinking. Man, this is kind of legit what he's doing. Hey, like, Payless less shoes, I think, is one of theirs. I mean, they're, and they're, and they're digitizing them and they're modernizing them. And eventually they're actually going to
0: re-physicalize them. It's pretty cool stuff they're doing. Right. Because you could probably buy like, like, let's take dress bar an example. I don't know the deal. I don't know anything about them. But my guess is buying them for two or three times EBITDA with EBITDA particularly low when they bought them, because, you know, everything's going digital, Right, probably got a really good deal. And people do, in the back of their mind, vaguely remember that brand. There is resources and relationships within the company and the brand that they can make use of to keep at least the minimal cash flow going. And just digitizing it and using Ty's massive social media influence, probably, I wonder, has it worked for them? Like,
1: You know, I'm on their list and it definitely appears to be working. I mean, they're they're rolling, you know, from one round of financing into another. They're paying out pretty... You know they're making offers, and, and you know, look, disclaimer. First of all, I have no dog in that fight or skin in that game, and secondly, I'm not an investment advisor. Everybody do your own research. But I mean, they are they are soliciting people for very very attractive returns, and they've been doing it long enough that they wouldn't be able to keep doing it if they weren't actually paying it right. Um, and they're you know they're they're talking about. I saw one the other day that was like, hey, you know, how would you like to turn a, I don't know, it's like a three or four hundred thousand dollar investment into you know a hundred plus thousand dollars a year. Cash on cash return plus equity in a deal, and think about it. I mean, ten years ago, twenty years ago, you drove into a parking lot. There was an anchor tenant that was probably like a Best Buy or a Home Depot, and then maybe there's a Target, and there, you know, they're still there. But then there was probably a Dress Barn, and there was probably a Linens and Things, and there was probably a Pier One, and yeah. there's probably a Williams Sonoma and a few other names that we recognize. So, you know, I can see their vision that the day you land on a digital web page and you see this same lineup of brands or, or you know those type of recognizable brands, it's like you physically drove into one of those old malls or, or one of those old retail centers. And there's a generation of Americans that are gonna feel very at home in that environment and very willing to spend money. And so they, I think they, you're right, they're getting it for pennies on the dollar. I mean, they're buying companies that have done billions of dollars in revenue for like 20 or $30 million. You know, That's, so it's pretty genius. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that is genius. And to your point, Ty is actually one of my favorite entrepreneurs. Tell me why. Because I've definitely changed my
0: opinion of him, and I'm not, you know, ashamed of Yeah, it.
1: yeah. And I mean, his, you know, he was a, at one point he was almost a caricature of himself, right? He yeah. was the guy in the garage with a bookshelf and a Lamborghini. But you know, jokes on us. I mean, we're the if we want to laugh at it, let's laugh at ourselves for giving him. 800 million views or whatever he got out of that and and planting the seeds in his field of what's grown into a legitimate business empire. You know, it's not like he's a dummy. Even if you wanted to reduce him to just that, he's still no dummy, right? Because he recognized that attention is the most valuable thing in the world now. And he got a crap ton of it, frankly, you know, at the opportunity cost of us by paying attention to what he was doing, we weren't paying attention to something else. So he's still one in that equation. But he, you know, he got into social media. The reason he was able to do that is because he was he was three, four, five years ahead of a lot of the people that would now say they're trying to do what he did, but he's already on to the next thing, right? So, yeah, yeah. so if you want to look at it that way and say, oh, well, you know, how many people right now are sitting around trying to produce silly memes and try to get attention on the internet and basically copy what he dominated five years ago while meanwhile, he's already moved on to the next thing. Um, and also just if you hear him talk, I mean, his whole shtick, like, I read all these books. I have all this knowledge. He actually does read all those books and he actually does have all that knowledge. And he's incredibly articulate and incredibly generous about sharing it. And honestly, he's just a guy that I can, you know, like yourself, I can just listen to him talk for an hour and feel like I got smarter.
0: I'm really impressed that he, he a lot of people who kind of start off with, in that newsletter business, like or the course business like he did and build an audience, they're not clever enough or they don't think out of the box to kind of switch that into private equity, but it's a natural evolution of it. If you have attention and you don't up level the sophistication of how you
1: monetize it at some point, then like shame on you.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. So, all right. So look in your book, unlock your potential later on in the book, you talk about, and people ask me this all the time and I'm just going to refer them to your book. Like what are good businesses to start right now? And I swear to God, if I was 18, and I always think about this, I wish I'd had this list in front of me and you to talk to about <laughs> them. Let's just talk about it. Like, And by the way, we've talked about this on a prior podcast. We'll link to it somewhere where you know you had a very interesting childhood or young adulthood where around the age of 16, you basically decided to go all in on essentially becoming a professional jazz pianist And you went all in on it. You were, you were too old for it. Everyone told you, but you did it. You did that. But now of course, you've built this huge online business where you help other people with the ideas you talk about in this book. So let's, I just want to go through them one at a time, like give the high level, how, what it is, how to, because they're all great ideas. I've probably done myself each one of these ideas at some point, and they're all good business models. So is that okay with you? Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds like we could help a lot of people. So affiliate marketing is your number one. And I do think if you get that right, which is trickier than it seems, you could make an an infinite amount of money. Like I'll tell you with my own business that sells newsletters, there's been a year or two where the only thing that's worked for me is not my own products, but affiliate marketing of other products. So let's just talk about what is affiliate marketing and how do people get started in it? So affiliate
1: marketing is a fancy technical term for the digital modernization of one of the oldest businesses in the world, which is just the referral business, right? Like, hey, I know a guy that has access to all the home inventory in Atlanta. So if you want to move to Atlanta, let me hook you up with my buddy. And if you buy a house through him, maybe he'll send me a Morton's gift certificate or something. That's affiliate marketing. It's just in the analog world. So on the internet, it's done through links and it's all tracked. And there's a special code that's embedded in the link where they actually know exactly where the referral link came from and they call it affiliate marketing. Let me just
0: summarize what you said. So let's say for instance, and I'll talk about it with high-end items. So let's say Tony Robbins is selling a weekend seminar that you could attend for $5,000, which is roughly the cost maybe of one. I don't even know. That's maybe the cost of one of his weekend seminars. And he creates an affiliate link. So anybody who directs people who sign up for that will split that $5,000 50-50. So if I have that link, it's Tony dot com slash James and sign up via this link. Anybody who signs up via that link, Tony Robbins gets $2,500 of the 5,000 and I get $2,500 of the 5,000 because I'm an affiliate. I sell a thousand of those. That's two and a half million. It's like an unbelievable amount, but how do I get started? Who am I showing that link to?
1: Yeah. So I will qualify your example by saying, I know Tony Robbins does have an affiliate program. I don't know if it's on his events or just on his information products, but also I doubt it pays 50%. I do think that's important to know. Like it's not always an even split. I mean, Amazon is the largest affiliate program in the world and their average payout is like three or 4%, right? It just depends on the product or the program.
0: For high-end products though, it tends to be a little higher.
1: It does, yeah. yeah. Like even at Entre, I mean, we have an affiliate program and and which, you know, by the way, one thing important to know is affiliate programs should be free. Like if somebody's making you buy a product, to become an affiliate, that's usually a red flag. Because if you right. think about that...
0: That's like a multi-level marketing scam. Yeah, exactly.
1: But like Entra, we have a free affiliate program. And yeah, I mean, I think on our higher-end programs, we pay 20%, for example. Uh, and on the lower ticket, I think we pay as high as 60%. So um, so yeah, your your example was, was very accurate of how it works. But yeah, the key is you're not going to build an audience of people that are willing to take your recommendation or your your implied endorsement of saying, hey, Tony Robbins is having an event. Here's a link. Disclaimer, if you click on it, I might get a commission. Like If you just send that to people the first time they have ever met you, they're going to be, you're annoying. I'm not clicking on your link. And also don't ever email me again, right? Yeah. But let's say you have an audience of people that are relevant to that offer people that are interested in personal growth people that are interested in professional growth people that are interested in helpful tips and tricks so forth and you've got a newsletter that pumps out tons of value to people day after day week after week and then you know at some point you say hey by the way you know we're an advertiser supported platform please allow us to tell you about some of our sponsors you know tony robbins and and maybe i'm using some clumsy language depending on the relationship but essentially you know hey, I'm sending you all this information for free in order to keep the servers on. At some point, I might send you an offer where I could get paid for something, but I'll only ever send you offers that I also believe in. And I had a great experience going to a Tony Robbins event once. Here, he's having a seminar, check it out. Like, that's a very reasonable message to send people and they're not going to begrudge you for it as long as you've given them actual value in the past. And to your point, you can make a crap load of money. (laughs)
0: So let me ask you a question. Like, let's say you're 20 years old or 25 or 45. Let's say you were a doctor, as the example, you know, you mentioned this briefly in the book. Let's say you're a doctor and you want to quit and get into online businesses and have more fun and make more money and not have to pay huge. Which by the way, I have
1: helped doctors transition out of medicine into these types of businesses. So it's a very good example. example.
0: It's a great, it's a great business to be in. Well, when you help these doctors, how do you advise them to start building an audience?
1: So I think one of the things to really understand about the digital economy and call them these various digital business models, like in traditional business or or call it physical brick and mortar business, if you're a barber or you're a chiropractor, there's not a ton of over, I mean, I guess there's some overlapping skill sets. There's like, you know, being good with people, you know, having good energy, having a good disposition or whatever. But like the practice of being a barber and the practice of being a chiropractor don't really overlap that much, right? right? But with digital business models, The reason that guys like you and me have kind of tried all of these and probably done fairly well at all of these is because 80, 90% of the skill sets between them actually overlap. And so, you know, as an affiliate marketer, I think that's important to understand. Like, you're not just becoming an affiliate marketer, you're learning a set of skills that are transferable across the entirety of the digital economy, at least the majority of them. Because on the internet, there's no barrier to asking for people's attention and asking for their interest. The majority of the skill set in all of these business models are actually skills around marketing and the delivery of value. And so ultimately, whether you're an affiliate marketer or you're creating your own course or you're running an agency or you're doing consulting or any of these different types of businesses, the number one question is, how do I get and keep people's attention? If you do that, you can be wildly successful with all of these businesses, right?
0: And look, there's a billion people out there trying to get people's attention. So like, like let's say someone's a chiropractor, like what would you tell them to do?
1: Yeah, it actually, it, it doesn't matter if they're a chiropractor or they're a, a financial planner or they're yeah. an affiliate marketer who's niche agnostic. It's actually all the same prescription. Figure out problems that you have uh, some sort of contribution to offer towards solving a set of problems, a category of problems, or what we would call a niche. And just start
0: providing as much value in that area as you can, so let's like brainstorm for saying. Let's say I'm a waitress in New York City and I'm sick of it, but I'm nineteen or twenty or twenty one. I don't really I'm not going to suddenly give life advice and and stuff like that. What would I start to look into? like i but my personal issues might be how to find an apartment that's cheap, yeah. yeah. I, I
1: mean, it, it could be like, you know how to how to survive as a twenty something in one of the most expensive cities in the world. I mean, yeah. That, okay. Good. That'd be an amazing subject.
0: And then, and then, about. how do you how do you get that word out there? You start.
1: You give it time. First of all, you have to calibrate your expectations. I mean, this is one of the biggest problems with internet-based businesses, is because I can go on Google, and I mean, we did this yesterday. In 0.2 seconds, I can find the names of the top one hundred ranked chess players in the world. I think there's a tendency to conflate that with oh, well, if I just use the internet to learn, then in 0.2 seconds, I can become one of the top 100 chess players in the world because I'm learning online. Yeah. It's like, no, real business and real anything still takes real time. And so if I'm a 19-year-old waitress, uh, first of all, there's no career in the world where a 19-year-old can show up and say, I demand that I be rich in 12 months and not be laughed out of the room. And the internet's no different. But there's a quality of life exchange or change when you say, okay, I'm going to start using my life to organically generate value that I can use to serve an audience that's truly appreciative of what I'm doing. And I can grow that into an off-ramp enterprise that eventually sets me free from reliance on the matrix. Like, even if that takes you five years, that's still a hell of a lot better than the 40-year, I'm never really going to be able to retire plan that most Americans are on.
0: Right. And so it's the whole idea, like, what's the best day to start? You know, when you were 18 and today. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. If I were that girl, I would start chronicling my journey. You know, I would set up a blog and, and the next entry would be like how I found a place to live that I could afford and not have a three-hour subway commute every day to get to work.
0: Then there's all the media where you could try it out.
1: I'll also suggest that as soon as you start looking at your life... I mean, this is a really powerful shift. This is the kind of woo-woo stuff that I actually don't, I'm not apologizing for, and I'm actually so grateful to get to talk about it in the book. These are the shifts I'm talking about. As soon as you change, you know, forgive the term, but as soon as you change your petty little selfish problems into opportunities to figure out solutions that you can use to serve thousands of other people that have those same petty, selfish little problems, now the problems in your life become opportunities for personal development and service from your life. And your life starts to get a lot more fun and a lot more meaningful. And actually you become, you get more natural gratitude because you go, man, if I didn't have any problems, I wouldn't have anything to talk about.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, look, that's how I started writing for On the Internet is just talking about my problems. Like (laughs) nobody wants to hear really about that you're the greatest person in the world. They want to hear about what were your problems and how you got out of them.
1: And by the way, someday when you've solved your problems, like, like let's use a guy like Tom Billu, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, he's example. got no problems. He's smart, he's talented, he's sold a billion-dollar company, he's got a great marriage, he's famous. Like he has no problems. Yeah, but one of the reasons we love listening to Tom is because he was actually documenting his problems back and, and I'm not saying he has no problems, but back when he had real relatable problems, he has pictures, he has journal entries. He docu- and, and there's even a section in my book that says document the struggle.
0: Yeah, that's great advice.
1: Hearing about all the problems you solved is a lot more interesting and a lot
0: more relatable if you were chronicling the process from the beginning. This is great advice. And and I think also people have to remember that just because you decide to go into affiliate marketing doesn't mean you're going to make, you know, sell a thousand Tony Robbins, you know, memberships or whatever overnight. You got to build the audience. Everybody could build an audience. It just takes dedication, persistence, study, like we talk yes, so you have to be obsessed with doing it. Uh, it it takes a massive
1: desire to serve someone other than yourself. That is actually why I love the digital economy is because unlike, I, I actually think in the physical economy, to some degree, there's a correlation between how self-centered you are and how successful you are. Yeah. I The digital economy destroys that. You actually have to genuinely want to serve other people or else you can't
0: game the system. Because the interesting thing is there is that you don't need any money launch a digital business. Like that waitress who's 19 years old, she could start an online business. She doesn't need money to do what we're describing. Right. But you do need something. You need value that you're bringing to others. You need value of some form. And so bringing real relatable value is better than buying some marketing.
1: And there's no resistance for people to ditch you and go to someone else. Right. In physical business, if I, if I show up for a haircut... And I'm getting, I'm like picking on barbers today, but let's say I show up for a haircut and halfway through, I'm getting kind of crappy service. Am I really going to get up and walk out with like half a haircut looking all jacked and like have to walk down the street and see if somebody else has an open chair? Like, no, there's some resistance to making a switch. But if I'm online and I get the sense that somebody's in it for them, not for me, I'm gone. Right. So it has a higher standard of service and integrity. That's why I think the internet's amazing. And it's the only place I actually really like to do business.
0: I agree. Sometimes I'm jealous of the physical nuts and bolts businesses just because I haven't done one. But actually, it's not totally true. I had a part of a comedy club, but that was more of a passion play than anything. This one's part one. Stay tuned for part two. Great stories all throughout. I hope you enjoy